Welcome to another amazing episode of Marketing Gets Real. Today's guest takes us in a little different direction. We're going to explore some sales failures with one of our favorite head of sales currently at Go One, Darren Medeiros. For the past 10 years, Darren has built sales and marketing teams for six different startups. He is especially skilled at building out teams from scratch and formulating a go-to-market strategy that includes where marketing should invest. He's also really good at blurring the lines between sales and marketing and understanding how they need to work together to be successful. Since most of these smaller companies he's worked at didn't have large budgets, he had to be really strategic about where investments were made. And he'll talk to us a little bit about that today. So let's dive in a little deeper with Darren and see how different or not his failures are with a sales focus. Hey, Darren, we're so excited to have you. It's been a while. So excited to be here. Thanks for joining us. So we just like to kick things off with, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get to where you're at today? Tell us a little bit about it all. So my name's Darren Medeiros. I did the journey the hard way. I've joined multiple startups and I thought, wow, what a great idea to try to build things from scratch. And so for the last 10 years, I built the sales teams for six different startups. Usually these startups are like series A, so they're very early Uh, The sales teams are two to three different people and grown them to, my biggest one was to 135 people so far and going from series A, B, and C. And really what I've learned through that transformation process is you have to do everything by hand. Like nothing is automated. I did, I was lucky to work at LinkedIn for three years where LinkedIn lucked into the best business model ever and people just gravitated to them. So it wasn't hand-to-hand combat, like building a startup. So that's all the battle wounds that you see in my face. The fact that I look 90 (laughs) years old is because of my last 10 years. So You're a glutton for punishment, huh? The serial startup guy. (laughs) It's really funny though. Like once you do it, you can't leave it. So when I joined LinkedIn, they had 400 employees. When I left at 8,000 and it wasn't fun anymore. And so I jumped from LinkedIn to these different startups because you basically had a blank blank page and you just built everything from scratch. And the number one thing I have the benefit of is experience. So when you go into things, you're like, no, no, no one does it that way. They do it this way in order to be successful. And I have to tell you, my first two startups after LinkedIn, I did it wrong. But the best part about doing it wrong is you now know how to do it right. And you know where to invest your time. And you also learn what noise looks like. When people are like, oh my, I can't do this, it's not working out, then you welcome those people to leave the organization so you can hire people that can come in and actually do it. So it's been a great experience. I'm super lucky in the sense that I've had success and failures because most people, well, not most people, most people aren't willing to take that kind of risk. And so- Yeah, yeah. I agree. It's true. It's true. Dana and I were super excited to have you on this call, Darren, because you speak the truth, right? And that's really what we're trying to get to is as marketers and sales leaders, you know, it's like, let's keep it real, right? Let's be real. And you're also our first guest on the sales side of things. And I think we told you that. So there's this long living religious war between sales and marketing, right? That we're all familiar with. And I think a good portion of it is 
it's competitive, it's good for the business, it keeps everybody on their toes and making sure that everybody's got their big piece to own and push forward from a revenue perspective. But let's hear your unvarnished view of how it feels to be a sales leader working with marketing, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So it's really funny that you said that because 10 years ago, my favorite joke was if you can't sell market. So it was, <laughs> it was our way of making fun of marketing. And then I went on this journey of building sales teams with these startups. And what's amazing is that there's a lot of things that you can do in sales to close business. It's relationship-based. You can find the right opportunities. And even if your product's not there, you can kind of make it fit, like shoehorn it where you're, you don't have to be 80%. But what I found with marketing is there is so much work behind it. I have such a deeper appreciation of our marketing people than I've ever had because it's so hard. It's not about like digital advertising or blogs or podcasts, or it's about connecting all these assets together and then creating some sort of momentum in the market that drives the sales team. So I have to tell you like, one of the things that I've learned in the startups is I've actually taken over some of the marketing aspects and kind of worked with different organizations in terms of how do we create these demand gen campaigns. And it's not about just a campaign, it's about tying campaigns together. So I think marketing is far more scientific than I've ever thought. And I, I think it's because I've done it the wrong way where the sales leader beats up the marketing people. And if you don't do it together, you're both going to fail. So I have a much, much deeper appreciation and I don't ever want a marketing person's job because that's hard. People joke about, well, sales is hard. And I don't think sales is nearly as hard as marketing because you have such a hard time validating what the investment is in marketing and what the actual return is. And sales, it's easy. You either make your number or you don't make your number. So it's, I'm a slave to marketing now. I'll do whatever they tell me to do. That's going to drive top of funnel and ultimately revenue at the end of the day. Well, and I think, Jared, always working with you, I think I don't think a lot of sales leaders get that, though. And I think that's what Carrie and I has enjoyed working with you because you really saw the picture and how it had to work together. And it was always a great experience for us because it, it isn't always the case, right? And then you do have this, everybody's in their silos and then everybody's wondering why it's not working, right? We handed over the leads, they're not working and marketing saying, well, they're telling us they're not qualified, but we did everything there, right? And there just becomes this huge rift between everything. And the reality is, is if you work together, it's so much more cohesive and successful. So yeah. And Darren, I think the fun part of working with you was that you gave us access as, as being marketing partners on with you on the sales side, you gave us access to the sales team. And I think for marketers to be able to really build those relationships with their colleagues on the sales side, not even at the leadership level, but at the get shit done level, right? Where, where we're all marching forward with the revenue in mind, it just made things a lot easier because then you could pick up the phone and say, what the fuck, Drew? You know, like, why we got you all these good leads. And he, you know, I mean, it's just, it just gives you the ability to, you know, solicit that feedback without anybody getting upset and not understanding where it's coming from. But I think it goes both ways. Like, I think in working with you guys, one of the things is you understood, like, Drew runs the SDR team. So you understood the SDRs need a warm lead, not a cold lead. And like, how do you start that conversation? And like, let's strategize on who the audience is, what the messaging is. So when his team inherited the list, they had some talking points. So it's it has to be reciprocal in the sense that you have to know what we're going through and we have to know what you're doing in order to drive that. Because once his team jumped on a call, they needed to know the backstory of 
how that person was touched. Was it a webinar? Was it a blog? Was it a, a newsletter? What was it? And so that's why I don't understand. To your point, I think from a marketing perspective, marketers sometimes don't know that they need to have that relationship. And so they stay in their castle and sales stays in their castle. And they just, well, I delivered this many. So like, get over it. Versus I think just the way that we work with you guys was like, hey, this isn't working. And and at what point do you pivot? And like understanding like we did these campaigns, they're not generating revenue. Do we reinvest or we find the next signal of where the leads are going to come from? So I think that's why it has to, they have to work together. And then secondarily behind that is the systems have to support that because I think marketing gets screwed over a lot when it comes to lead allocation in terms or revenue allocation by lead because of how Marketo is tied into Salesforce and lead attribution and all of that stuff. So I think there's a lot of things that if you work together, then you can actually fix it versus us versus them. So I think, but yeah, I think from working with you guys, you understood what sales was going through and actually wanted to fix the problem versus just have a consulting partnership with Go One. So I think there was a lot of back and forth. And I think the other thing really quickly is marketing has to own the delivery side. It's really, this is where marketing gets super complex. And this is why I would never be a marketer is when you throw a webinar, there's a whole workflow behind it. It doesn't start when the webinar starts and it doesn't end when the webinar ends. It's all this audience attraction type elements and marketing and then tracking. And then, like you said, handing it off to the SDRs, getting feedback, like there's so many different things behind that, that if you don't do it together, it just becomes, it's like spaghetti. Like it's a mess. It's true. Yeah. I think it's such a good way to describe it. So, all right. So the other interesting thing, Darren, I think about, and I mean, you've worked at all these startups, but was, so was Go One the first one that was like the entrance into the US for you? Because when you started there, I mean, you were at like at zero, right? I mean, you had nothing when you guys started here. I mean, obviously you had the infrastructure of what they had built in Australia and kind of what's going on there. But from a perspective here, I mean, you had a brand to build on top of selling and then figuring out what you're going to do for marketing. I mean, is that accurate? Yeah. So we have this internal joke, which is now not internal, that our entire sales team made 75,000 calls and only one person said, oh, I know who Go One is. Oh my gosh. (laughs) So visibility-wise, we were pretty close to zero. I don't know what one over 75,000 is, but I think it's a low number. It's a pretty small percentage, yeah. So, and I think the other problem Go One had is we didn't have a true competitor. Like, we have one competitor, Open Sesame. They're not a very big company. They're maybe, a, they were back then probably a $40 million company. So we couldn't piggyback on a competitor and say, oh, we're like this person. So we couldn't do any brand identification with anybody else because we're doing things differently than everybody else. So it was really hard to take advantage of momentum from somebody else. So, so yeah, no, we, nobody knew who we were. And I don't think we had a clear, like, this is what we sell because in the three years we've changed directionally, like how people buy and what they buy from the beginning. Because at first we were selling the LMS. And then because we sell learning content from 110 different providers, the asset was actually learning content, but we spent the first year selling LMS. And so in working with you guys, you guys helped us like get out of the LMS and get into the content because everyone wanted content. And 
because there's so many LMSs and our differentiator was content. So I think, and but that's the journey that marketing people are really good at, right? So they're like, what's the signal? Show me the signal and let's move into this different bucket. And so we did it on the sales side, which is you don't want to do it on the sales side. It's it's super painful and expensive. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So what were some of the mistakes made? You know, because this season of our podcast is around mistakes and hoping that you'll be forthcoming in, in some of the mistakes in those early days when you're literally starting from zero. And no one knows who you are. No one knows who you are. I don't know if they're mistakes. I mean, they're mistakes that we assume certain things. Like it goes back to the signal piece, right? Like we thought, uh, we're going to sell our LMS and people are just going to buy it. We're going to go after manufacturing and people are just going to buy it. And so what happened was we would go into these competitive environments and just get our ass kicked on the LMS side. Or we go into these content arenas where we didn't have enough content for our prospects. And so we go through these six to nine month sales cycles. And so, but it was, we didn't know better. And this is where I think we could have been a little bit smarter in the sense of pivoting quicker. Like, but for me, this was a new, you know, learning's new to me. So I didn't know, because you'd look at other players in the market and, and they're performing and yet we're not performing. So if there was a way to identify like, hey, you're not performing and help identify, like market research would have been a great, a great asset to say, hey, here's where everybody else is. You can't compete against them, but you can compete here. I think that's one piece. One of the other things I would have changed is going, Dana, you and I talked about partnerships and our partnership network is like on fire right now. And if we could have two years ago lit that on fire then, we would have been 18 months ahead of where we are. But it's really hard to look for signals when you're running at 70,000 miles an hour. So that, I think the biggest mistake is you have to pause and see where you are. And then the other thing is you have to, you really have to get somebody that's kind of watching what's working and what's not working and provide that feedback. I think it would have shaved off maybe six months to a year of our learnings. You're right. I mean, that was such a growth time too, right? Everybody was running so fast. It was got to get out into the marketplace um, and seize the opportunity. So it's a fine balance. Well, and then let's be real too. I mean, right when you're ready to go forward, like we were doing some marketing stuff, I mean, like so many people, COVID hits, right? And disrupts everything. But for you guys, I mean, you guys were just taking off here. I mean, it was like, and there's a lot of benefit to what you sell to support, you know, where we've ended up here, but it definitely was not ideal time for anybody, but for you guys who are just kind of starting to finally get that traction in a brand in your product. I do think if we had been more diligent on the marketing side, that we would have seen the signals ahead of time of what was working, right? Like one of the things we did with you guys is you guys tested multiple things, content marketing, digital marketing, events. You discovered that events were really where we were going to drive most of our revenue. And again, unfortunately, COVID kind of destroyed that. But the whole nurture campaigns, like taking all the assets that we've invested in and reinvest in different ways of engaging them. I think if we had listened to the output of those different campaigns better, we would have said, ah, but again, that's a marketing, that's a science marketing person. That's not a, we're so in the guts of day-to-day -day deals on the sales side that if someone on the marketing side, like you guys, because we, we had reporting, right? Like you guys reported on open rates, engagement rates, close rate. So I think marketing actually could have 
saved us that six to 12 months because you, you see it first, right? Like you invest $10,000 in a LinkedIn digital campaign, you get 10 click-throughs. Well, that sounds like a bad investment. <laughs> Unless they turn into $2 million worth of it, revenue. Well, exactly, right? It's like, it could be. It depends how, you know, what's our average deal size and how long does it take to close? For sure. Darren, one of the other, you know, my favorite things you mentioned to us, because I think we probably hear it a lot, is expectations around sales leads when we start getting marketing up and running. And, and there's maybe some missed expectations around how quickly those are going to come into the pipeline. And then also you mentioned, which is near to dear my heart, is just content and how much is really needed to fuel kind of all these efforts. So would love to hear your thoughts on it. So what's interesting is that there's different ways that companies feel like they can drive leads. One, they feel like they can hire a voice of the industry. And I actually don't believe that anymore. And I think that's through the journey that we have with you guys in the sense that I think content is the way you drive awareness and you drive leads. And I think, and quality content that talks to the practitioner. No one wants to go to a conference and listen to the same person talk all the time because that person usually represents 20 brands and you never know who that person represents at that moment. And so I think that was one of the first mistakes in terms of how does that drive that? So I think from a lead perspective, my philosophy now is much more centric around create awareness first and then create campaigns behind that awareness. Then you can get your leads. And one of my key learnings with you guys was it takes time. I would never, ever in my next startup, if there is a next startup, my number one conversation with a founder is six to 12 months. And these are the steps you're going to take. You're going to build out an actual campaign that starts with awareness, education, and then actual digital campaigns or whatever event campaign, like all these other audience attraction campaigns after people know who you are. Because that first three months of I'm going to spend $10,000 on LinkedIn when nobody knows who you are is a total waste of money. And so I think that. And founders, especially of startups, they don't want to hear that. They want pipelines. And I'm sure you've met other people like me. Hopefully I wasn't the biggest jerk in the world. No. But <laughs> that was like, oh my God, I need leads. I have no pipeline. <laughs> it's a pretty common thing that we hear. <laughs> How fast can I get leads? Well, do you have content? No. Do you have anything? No. Do you have a marketing automation platform? No. Okay, well, probably not tomorrow, just so we're clear. And it's funny, I, I was just on an ADP webinar, and they're one of their chief science officers talking about a retention, replacement, how, you know, the, the big, everyone's quitting their job without having a new job and why they're doing that. And it's amazing just listening to them talk about how relevant their content was is so engaging. And so it's one of those things that, if you could find a partner that can create the content that drives people to say, oh, I want to know more, and it's right in front of your face. Like, they've been talking about, what is it, the, the people quitting? They've been the great resignation. Like, yeah, the great, great resignation. resignation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. So the great resignation for like eight to 12 weeks now. But this was the best webinar I've ever seen on the topic. So that is why content is king. And People will follow subject matter experts and not necessarily figureheads in the industry to drive you know, engagement. So I'm 
totally sold on content. Well, and people want to be educated, right? And so, I mean, we all are going out looking for articles. I mean, I don't know how many times in my day I'm searching for something to support something that I need and I'm looking for content and I get frustrated. I'm like, why does this not exist? Why hasn't somebody done this piece of content, right? And it's the stuff that we need. And you're in a space right now where stuff around the great resignation and and training and upskilling employees and people wanting to change careers, right? Like getting the right content in front of people right now is going to support all those efforts because it's the biggest thing everyone's talking about. It's a challenge to hire people in every industry, in every place right now. It's like a buyer's market, right? If you're, It's like the opposite of what we're doing, you know? And so with the right content, you know, you start to build that trust. So yeah, it's funny, like during COVID, we saw everyone left their office last March, right? And then we saw a spike in COVID content consumption. And then we, what we saw after six months is people didn't want to hear that word ever again. So it tripped into wellness. And then what happened like four months later is it tripped into diversity and inclusion. Like you see these different trends. And so I'm like, we should tell somebody. Like this sounds like, like our customers, prospects, people on LinkedIn would probably love to hear like, what do I talk about now? Because they don't know, right? So, and they would love to hear consumption data that says 80% of the people are doing this. 80% of the people are doing this, right? So that's the kind of like content marketing. I think I don't see any just digital marketing working without having assets behind it. Yeah, agreed, agreed. And I think you had said something earlier, Darren, about having that research. And, you know, Dana and I are huge fans of market research as we're at companies that are launching new products or into new markets. And those types of things can really fuel content for a long time, right? It can provide that care and feeding for a long time. So yeah, you're preaching to the choir here though. <laughs> the one asset that I have to say when you guys came on board was creating the personas of who we sell to. It was the first time that we got everybody in sales to say, here's the right audience. And the profiles that were created actually gave us like a starting board for like, what do we do next? Like now we know what, you know, Mary in HR looks like. Now we know what Steven at the enterprise level looks like. Or And then like that's foundational. And so I think that's one of the other mistakes that I've made in past startups is we don't start with the foundation of who's the ideal customer profile and I think that's a marketing thing because I don't think it's a sales thing. I think we give you the data and you guys consume it and dumb it down. And so, and then you create all the content assets, outreach and stuff like that. Like, where do these people exist? But I think that's common in startups, Darren, because what happens is, is it goes back to, we need leads right away. So we're going to skip the foundational things that we need to do. But what happened was, I think what's so interesting about personas is like when we first started, if you recall, we're like, we did the SMB and the enterprise. We're like, start SMB. That's our focus. And it shifted. And that's okay. It was really easy to go, okay, well, we know who that other persona is. We were putting efforts here, but let's shift our focus there. And there's more than the two, right? We talked about it. There's always more than two, but we have to start somewhere and understanding where those audience pain points are. It not only helps marketing, it helps drives your sales conversations, right? It's like, how do I more intelligently talk to this person? Well, I can do it by understanding what keeps them up at night, right? What are those? And and also understanding they're not static, right? I mean, the personas change. I mean, over COVID, 
what was kept a HR person up overnight prior to the pandemic is not what it is today, right? And it's changed four times since the pandemic. You just said it, right? It's like, well, they were worried about this, now this, now this. So it's just like living and breathing document. But it's interesting. I think a lot of people skip over it. And I think it just drives all of your messaging and content. It makes life so much easier if you actually will take the time to do it. Yeah, I totally agree. It's funny though. One of the other things that I get stuck on is how come we can't react faster? Like to your point, so HR changes. So one of the things I'm a big fan of is signals. So if like our biggest customer was a signal to us that we should be prospecting and selling into one space, right? But I don't think we've made that adjustment, but we should. And like, I think that's probably going to Carrie's point about failures, like is like looking at signals and reacting quickly to things that will benefit you. And then I'm also a huge fan of moving away from people that aren't profitable, like get out of the business of having bad customers because, and I'm sure you guys have run into this where they don't appreciate what you're doing. They don't appreciate, like you can never make them happy. Well, you should just fire them. And like, like we don't do a hardcore firing, but there are bad customers. And so if the signal is, these are great customers, super profitable, they're going to get you to where you want to go, follow them and get out of the way of the bad customers because they're only going to make your life miserable. Yeah, absolutely. And bad customers can come in many forms, right? It can be a drain on your internal resources. It could be not able to be upsold to, right? I mean, there's a lot of different ways to look at that. But yeah, that's why when we get involved in conversations around ICPs and buying groups and things like that, it oftentimes does come to, you know, putting a grid in place and who's in the upper right and what do they look like? And let's try to, let's try to focus there. And when we're talking about personas and when we worked with you, Darren, to say, let's focus on these two, oftentimes we'll go into startups, super excited and passionate about the spaces that they're going into. And they're talking to a lot of different people and they've got 10 personas. And it's like, you know, we got to focus. We got to be really in intentional on the top two or three, you know, to get started with, because if you spread yourself too thin, you're not going to impact anything. But Dana's right. Like we started with you guys at SMB. We are like, ah, SMB is the future, but you did the enterprise persona, which still applies today. And the enterprise is where we make all our money now. So it's, it's like, and you made it simple because then messaging, I can't even imagine 10 personas. Like that, that exhausts me. Yeah. Well, especially for a small company, when small companies say they have that many, I'm like, you don't. First off, even if you did, you can't operationalize it. But I've worked with large companies like Fortune 500 companies. They have 20 across their entire organization. So if a small company is telling me they have 10, I'm like, mm, you know, no, you can't, you can't work with that. I think it's just too much. But I think it goes back. I mean, Carrie, you were just saying too, I mean, when we talk about, I, you know, Carrie and I struggle with, do we take on a customer and we often go, does it meet our ICP? Should we take it on? Because what we find is those customers that fail or are good for us are often ones that fit outside those personas and those ICPs, right? And so it's a signal we've picked up on just learning, which I love you're talking about. That's such a great way of looking at it is we'll look at somebody and because when you're smaller in a startup and even like Carrie and I, it's exciting to take on business and you don't want to turn it away, right? And so it's like, I'll take this, I'll take this. But then what happens is, is those are the clients that we're unsuccessful in. We can't support them the way they needed to be, or they don't have the tools in place for us to be successful 
successful. And so it ends up not working anyways. And so it becomes a, a blueprint even for sales in terms of who do we want to work with so that we are on the right path and, and have that right customer set. So yeah, I think what the downside is sales gets tons of money, right? Like sales gets money. We pay our employees well. We get whatever resources we need and it's to rob marketing of their dollars. And I think like the signal for me is, is how important do you think marketing is? Like, are you going to invest? Do you have a, a decent sized budget? What do you think? Like, what I liked about Go One is, is we set what the cost per lead was going to be and what the investment strategy was behind it. And so, and it was very generous on top of like what, other startups where we basically starved marketing for the benefit of sales, which ultimately starved sales. So, so that is such a mistake. And it goes back to, you need the top of the funnel people to be like supercharged because you're never going to get to the successful closed one, unless the people in the front end of the journey are like feeding you. They know what the market is, know where to go. And they, they have money to spend because, and this, also goes back to the point, like you and I have talked about this, about this is why having an agency that has different resources, rather than having hiring somebody internally, where you pay them $200,000, and you just, that's all you get to that person, but you don't have the ability to spend in other ways. You don't get a content creator. You don't have anyone to do the adver advertising. You don't have an automation system. Like You basically put all your money in one person, and that person can't do anything alone. We just got our customer quote for the website, Dana. <laughs> Thank you, Darren. That was unscripted too, by the way. <laughs> so. But it's true, right? Because you're it's like looking for a unicorn, right? It's like, yeah. I mean, you can't expect somebody to do it all. I mean, I'm not an SEO expert. I'm not a so digital expert, like on social media and everything. I mean, content's my background. I mean, that's just, it is what it is. Could I fumble through it? Yeah, I can talk about it. I could do it, but I wouldn't do it well, so... Yeah, but it's an awareness thing. So like trying to tell a founder, like, I get it, sales is important, but how you get to sales is through marketing and the investment should be equal. My investment in marketing and my investment in sales should be the same. So instead of six sales, people who are going to starve and three are going to quit, I'm going to invest that three headcount into marketing. And so my three reps make a ton of money. Who cares? Everyone wins. That's Love so it. refreshing. That is, that is so refreshing. I know, but no one does it. Like that's what's so annoying is, and from someone who's been at six startups since LinkedIn, it's just, and, and normally what they'll do is they'll take somebody who's so unqualified and put them in charge of marketing. And so, and you're like, um, no, that, that's not going to work. And yet they're like, no, no, no that person can totally do it. You're like, no. Marketing's not that hard. You can also yeah. answer the phones while you're doing it. Right? <laughs> right? Well, it is. It's often an admin, right? Well, the admin can help support marketing too on top of doing this. And Or um, can you design a PowerPoint too and be a graphic designer? And I mean, yeah, we, we really undervalue some of these skill sets, I think. so. Absolutely. So when we talk, Darren, you know, we mentioned event ROI, and that was kind of one of the one of the points that you had around, do they really pay off? Um, we know that as we're looking and, you know, when we built the demand gen plan for Go One as well, you know, we got 
kind of an idea of what's our average cost per lead, cost per conversion, cost per customer acquisition. Like we know what we're looking for and we know that events tend to skew on the bigger side. And so making sure that we've got a good mix there. So what's the gotcha there or your experience around spending for events as a marketing tactic? So I think our biggest learning was, well, one, I think we learned that the decision makers go to events. And I think what the mistake we made was our messaging was really cluttered, right? So we do a lot of things. And again, one of the things you guys helped us through was simplifying the message, right? Train like a boss. And so the whole concept of rather than tell them everything we do, just get them to come over and say hi. And we did that. I think that was the event that we got our biggest customer from. And it was because we created this really simple signal. So our learning was, one, we have to go to events because not people don't know who we are. So they have to see us and see us in an open space where we're surrounded by peers or like companies where people would come up. And then we have to create a very simple signal that says, hey, I want to train like a boss. And the whole messaging around content, right? Uh, pivoting away from, hey, we're a learning management system to we have all the content that you need. And then the additional branding of the t-shirts that if you need content, ask me, stuff like that. So I think one of the things that we learned, we learned over time was that you have a singular focus and then you just market the crap at it in events. And I think one of the other things I think you guys taught us is an event isn't just an event, it's a series of events. So having like a cocktail party or dragging people from sponsored speaking places and getting those people to come to the cocktail party and like getting people that came to the booth to come to the cocktail party. So events as an event, it's kind of like digital marketing, right? Like if I just run one ad campaign on LinkedIn and I don't get any output, then that's not the events failure, that's my failure. So the fact that we layered in all these different engagement aspects is, and they weren't that much more expensive, right? It might've added like five or $10,000, but the actual, by the end of that conference, we had relationships. It wasn't just a business card. So I think that's a key learning. I don't know if it was a failure, but that was something that we learned that you have to do all these things if you want to capture the most amount of opportunities. Yeah. And it is tough when you're doing the marketing plan and you're looking at the cost of events, right? Because it is a big nut. And then going back to attribution, which is one of the points that you made early. And, you know, I mean, we, we still celebrate the win that we had with you, Darren. It was really exciting, right? Because together we worked towards helping you get the biggest deal that you had gotten. So. Yeah. I think if, by that point, we had pivoted to enterprise. So our ACV was significantly higher. So for us to invest in an event, and, and we didn't do big booths. We did 10 by 10s, right? So it wasn't like, I think the big booth people are people who have a brand and people know who you are. And if you're like Sun Microsystem, they're gone. I'm sorry, Apple. If you're like a big brand that people know. Showing your age there, Darren. Yeah, I I think Oracle acquired them, right? I think they're all working for Oracle these days. Yeah. Okay, so I'm old. Uh, So so yeah, so if you saw the Oracle brand, then a big boost. But I think we benefited from being smart in the event investment. But it's, it's really, again, the fact that we had multiple events at one event, like the cocktail party, the speaking spot, 
the small booth, the simple messaging was really what made us most successful. And I think companies that just invest in a booth are missing a bigger opportunity. Yeah. It's about pulling somebody through the progression of the funnel. And this is really where I think what we're talking about, sales and marketing have to work together to pull somebody through the funnel, right? This is not a one-sided, it's, you know, often you see sales at the bottom of the funnel, marketing's at the top, we go through, it's just not really how it is. It's it's multiple engagement points along the way and helping somebody progress through that experience and all of those touch points is what adds up to the ultimately the sale. And it's not always fast, it takes time. And I think it's about understanding, I mean, you talked about setting expectations, understanding the stuff take time and it gets there and not everybody buys in a day, right? especially in the B2B world. It's just not how it works. And so if you can put patience behind it and work together, you ultimately hit the success together. So yeah, I have to say though, our events were successful because of you guys, right? Like all the planning, going back to the whole, like salespeople are horrible organizers. We'll just show up and like do what we do. Like we were the face of these events, like at the cocktail parties, at the, the booth, the demo dollies, like we did everything, but like, it takes a lot of planning to get everything done from setup. And one of the other things is we used to invest in people to set up the booth and you guys were like, get your SDRs to do it. They can put together a booth. Like it, it takes two minutes and you're going to save $5,000. So there are That's right. Things- I forgot you did that. I was like, why are you spending that money? <laughs> so I think, again, though, that goes back to the whole marketing Marketing is so much better than sales at this, where they can actually run this workflow because what you would do is you guys would set it up. You'd get us in the event. You'd make sure all the submissions were for the speaker spots, make sure the speaker knew what they were talking about, do these mock walkthroughs, and then the SDRs set up the booth, who was doing what booth duty, what time, how to invite people to, like, there's so, it's like event planning, which is just an absolute nightmare. And especially when you have salespeople, because you're like, you're herding kittens, right? You're like, okay. And the best part is two days after the event, our SDRs were on the phone following up with all the leads. Like there was no delay because the first person that touches those leads wins. And so that's why, again, to your point, like the marketing and salespeople have to work together because if there was any friction, and I think the biggest mistake is sending marketing people to events. I think the number one thing, you know, in-person events. I think you should send SDRs because they'll talk to anybody all the time for eight to 10 hours a day. Make them work. Well, and Love it. often they're young in the career, so they want to travel, right? They want the opportunity to get out of the office, get off of the phones, do something new. So it's it's a great way to and give them experience, right? So I love it. Darren, I used to be a trade show manager. Talk about, about being old. But I talked my boss into, like, I was the only one on the show floor that had a flip phone, a big flip phone, because it was to keep the salespeople in the booth. It would be like, you can use my phone if you stay here instead of going over to the phone bank. (laughs) Guys, I had one sales guy show up late to the show. I was organizing like our biggest show. And he looked at me and goes, I was out too late last night. Dana, can you go get me some water and some aspirin? I was like, oh, no, 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 no. This is not how it works. I was like... (laughs) I love All it. those I leads you think you're generating, they just went to the other sales guy who's here. So, <laughs> No, I think we, for the first two events before COVID kicked in, we used it as an incentive for the SDRs. So whoever performed, they got to go and, yeah. and they loved it. It was fun. 
You had a great team. They, they were, were so uh, excited. Really to go. energetic. Yeah. 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 So of the six startups I've worked at, I'm just going to keep saying six until people remember it. The Go One has gone through the fastest growth of any of those companies. And it, it's a great product. There's a huge market for it. And the only thing that concerns me is there's no competitors in it. Like something that validates product market fit is if there's a lot of competitors and there's only a couple. So, but at this point, we've seen the momentum. And so we're lucky. So it's great to build a team with that kind of momentum because everyone, we do the, do you remember when three years ago stories where we had to beg people to buy and now we don't do that anymore. Like we, <laughs> it's a great place to be. That's Love great. it. So Love what are you it. working on now, Darren? What do you've got up your sleeve? What sales marketing combination you got going? So I've, because of our partnership with this, our largest customer, I've been working with them. And from a marketing perspective, they are more of an established brand. And so kind of it, what's interesting is we're doing the sales enablement side and we're doing the kind of go to market side. So you know, enabling their salespeople. But what's funny is I, I think startup land has taught us to be more aggressive in marketing and let's go find new audiences. Let's go tell people outside of your ecosystem. And so what we're putting together is different campaigns to do that, whether it's finding, working with resources like Sherm or HR.com or ATD, which is an industry for us. So, and it's it's been really interesting to kind of work with their marketing teams and say, hey, there's other people outside your ecosystem. Because I think when you get to become a big company, you tend to just focus on what's in your sales force or your CRM. And so they're super excited. I'm super excited because it's more, it's simpler. And I, I get to go do roadshows and promote our partnership. And it's just, it's turned out to actually, this is the customer that you guys acquired with us. So, uh, or help this acquire. So it's it's just been it's been really nice because it's it's kind of a fresh start. I tend to like to reset every three years. I like pain apparently, and so, but yeah. So it, it's very different. But I, I've never worked with an organization this long, or not this long, but this large. That they definitely have. I don't know if you've worked with companies that are. Dan, you mentioned earlier that you had that they have all these processes in place. So when you when you're like, hey, why don't we do this? They're like, well, we've never done that. Like, we don't really, I'm in my lane and my lane is, and you get on these calls and there's 30 and 40 people and you're like, well, all of you do the same thing? Like, like, like we have 40 people in sales. <laughs> like, you have 40 people in marketing communication. Like, this is, and then the approval process is seven levels, right? Oh, yeah. So, yeah. you know, that logo is two months old. You can't use that. I'm like, well, <laughs> Could I get a new logo? Like, someone help me out here? Like, we have a client who are like, you need to follow the brand guidelines. Well, can we have access? No. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I'm sorry, we can't have access to the brand guidelines. No, there's a big process to that. Well, can we go through that process? Like, how are we supposed to do the work? I'm so confused. But they don't even know who to go to. They're like, we we don't know who has that. I was like, like there's other agencies here, right? I mean, like there's, I mean, but it's the layers upon layers that you question, like, how do you guys ever get anything done legit? So yeah. No, but they love, like, this is why I think companies would love to work with you because you guys would come with like new ideas or you would pivot because companies don't pivot. And I think that's the biggest mistake is they, they think I'm just going to do the same thing and get better results or pour more money at it and get better results. And 
and that doesn't work. The, the right response is I'm going to measure and then pivot. So I think that's why companies should hire guys like you, because I think it just it's too easy to be stale as an employee. It's really hard to be stale as an agency, right? Because you're constantly trying to innovate. And I think um, that's why I love working with you guys. Just you. So we see lots of things, right? And so it's it's often it's fun to go into a client and say, these are a lot of the different things that we're seeing, and maybe these two things would be a way that you could approach it. So I hate to say this, but we're getting to the end of our time here. Darren, we could chat with you all day. <laughs> I know. You got to get out there and do some selling. So we're going to ask you our last question, which is our, our favorite question. And, and I can tell you that one of our guests has already taken the advice that carbs do count. So you can't, you can't use that one. But what's the advice you would give your 20-year-old self? You know what's funny is... When I was 20, well, can I go a little bit older, like 22? Sure. Sure. Yeah. So when I was 22, I joined my first startup. And my first startup, I was there five years, and it was brutal. But it went public five years later, and it was the reason I could afford a house in California. So I think what I would do, what I would tell myself from then on is it gets better, right? So every brutal, everyone has a bad day. Sometimes you have bad weeks or bad months, but like it gets better. And so sticking to that theme is, is if you can't find a happy place within an organization, then you should absolutely leave. But if you're just having a bad day or whatever you're encountering, just stick it out for a couple more weeks and just fake it till you make it. And then if it doesn't get better, then leave. Because I've made the mistake of it's not going to get better. And so I made that determination ahead of time without sticking it out. And I think that's that's the one thing I would tell my kids when they turn 20 is, is it's not always going to be great. So really get used important. to it. That is yeah. good feedback. That's yeah. really good feedback. Like people, we come out thinking everything should be hunky-dory 100% of the time. And that's just not life. Instant gratification, right? That's what we want. Here's mine. Um, don't get married till you're 35. Like date whoever you want. Don't get married. Like it's stupid, 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 stupid. Everyone's on their fourth person by the time they're 35 and they figured out what matters, right? And so that is what I would tell my kids is don't get married till you're 35, maybe 33, but definitely not in your 20s because that's going to cost you a lot of money. Yeah. It's such a growth time. I mean, I tell my kids the same thing. I'm not paying for a wedding until you're 30 because- the person you are at 20 is not the person you are at 30 or even 25, 26, 27, right? You're, you're, it's such a growth, a growth phase. So I like that advice. That's good advice. Me too. Can't be more appreciative for you joining us today. Yes, thank you. And that's as real as it's getting with this episode. Thanks for joining hosts Dana Harder and Carrie Baldwin with Unreal Digital Group. In this podcast, Marketing Gets Real, where we get rid of the filters and chat with B2B marketers about real life stories of successes, failures, and everyday adventures. If you're loving these oh shit, tell it how it is type of conversations, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time.